Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are, are here with us as we continue to journey through this entire book uh, this year, taking time to look from Genesis to Revelation at this incredible story. Uh, why don't we pray together as we prepare our hearts to hear these words. Gracious Father, we um, come to you this morning uh, grateful for your love, for your faithfulness. God, for the many ways that you continue to take care of us, uh, even though we are so undeserving. God, I pray that you would help us in these moments uh, to hear from you, that we would listen to your word with joy and anticipation uh, that you are the God who still speaks. And so I pray that you would grab our hearts, that you would change our lives, and that we would experience a little bit more of who Jesus is in this place this morning. For the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not really sure how it happened, uh, but, but have you noticed that, that more and more in television and movies, uh, the loser is kind of becoming the hero? You notice this, right? The, the nerd, the awkward guy, sometimes even the bad guy. Uh, since when does he end up with the girl, right? Um, I, I'm not sure real life has, has caught up necessarily, right, with these progressive ways uh, because we know, don't we, the, playing the role of the loser, that's a hard role to play, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a role that I've, I've played more than a few times, um, certainly, certainly growing up. I mean, I, I had a, a happy childhood, so I don't want to, you know, this isn't some sob story. Uh, but I was a loser growing up, honestly. I, w- I was a dork in so many different ways. Um, I, I grew up in a small town in Illinois. And my dad was one of the few pastors in this little tiny town where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everything about everybody. And so I was weird just by association, right? Just at the get-go. And on top of that, we were poor. I mean, I I was the fat kid always growing up. I mean, I still have nightmares from gym class. As I like to call it, state-sponsored organized torture. I I hated it. I, I know what it's like to play the role of the loser. And kids, students, uh, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel that sometimes, right? You don't make the team or you don't do as well on the test as, as you had hoped. Maybe you don't dress the right way or talk the right way. We all know what it's like to feel like the outsider, don't we? All of us. And frankly, it doesn't really matter how old you are. Some of us, if we're honest, still kind of feel like the loser, and, and you think you might actually have enough evidence in your life to prove it, right? You, you look at your job or your family or your appearance or your friends or lack thereof, uh, you look around and you just sometimes feel a little bit less. Many of us feel that way. Now, maybe that's not your experience at all. Uh, maybe you're a winner. And, and maybe you've always been a winner and, you know, good for you, I guess. But if you, if you look deeply, even if, even if that's you, right, you've always been sort of the, the winner, the attractive, the successful, the, the good enough kind of person. Even if that's you, I mean, take, take one more look deep within, right? Deep, deep inside. And think about the, the, the mistakes that you've made, the people that you've hurt, the, way, the, the incongruities between uh, what you say you believe and the way you actually live your life. I mean... Who are you trying to kid? You're a loser too. <laughs> so am I. 
But I've got good news, losers. God loves losers. And I'm not saying that that God plays favorites necessarily. I'm not saying that. But if God were to play favorites, hands down, he'd always pick the underdog, the outcast, the ugly, the unlovable and unloved. Without a doubt, he always tends to gravitate towards the loser, the most broken down person he could find. Our God loves losers. And this, this book, honestly, this book is full of losers, We've read about quite a few of them already this year, and we're only in, in the beginning parts of Joshua. I mean, Adam and Eve, right? They broke the world. Abraham was a liar. Leah was ugly and unloved, this, this wife of Jacob and, and the, the beginning of, of God's people as a nation. Joseph was the, the butt of all of his brother's abuse. Moses was insecure about his public speaking. This book is full of losers, and we're still just at the beginning. In fact, really, if you think you're a winner... If you think you're good enough, you, you've got what it takes in your life, you're successful enough, you've, you've got that sort of status on your own. If you think you're a winner, well, I mean, Jesus did say he only came for the sick, right? Sorry. That's the way it works. Only for losers. And today we see one of the most beautiful pictures of that in all of Scripture. Go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2 if you haven't already, if you've got a Bible with you. If not, we'll have it on the, on the slides as well. Uh, Joshua, still at the beginning, right? Somewhere in between Deuteronomy and Judges, you'll find Joshua chapter 2. And as a church, we've been journeying with the Israelites since, really since the very beginning, right? And, and now Moses is dead, Joshua has taken the lead, and they are literally inches from entering the, the land that God promised, And in this story, the story we just heard read, the story of Rahab, uh, we learn three things, really three things about what God is looking for. God looks for desperate people, God looks for desperate faith, and God looks for any chance to show mercy. Because you see, everyone in this story, again, if you kind of think back, we heard it read a moment ago, everyone in this story is looking for something. I mean, Joshua's looking for a good battle plan. The spies are looking for a weak point uh, in the city. Uh, The Canaanites are looking for the spies. Rahab is looking for a way to save her skin in this moment. But who is God looking for? First, God looks for desperate people. So the story begins in in Joshua 2. And and Joshua has just sent out these two spies into the land of Canaan, particularly into the city of Jericho. And Jericho at that moment in history would have been a very strategic place. Um, you know, as it was along an ancient kind of major highway uh, through Canaan. Um, and so it was an influential place for the spies to be able to gather information, as well as would be an influential place for the, the, the Israelites to capture and to, to take over. It makes sense that they're there. And so it starts in verse 1, kind of in the middle of verse 1. It says, They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, we could debate what these nice Jewish boys are doing at the home of a prostitute, but we're not going to, okay? Uh, Back in that culture, they didn't have Motel 6, okay? And so the home of a prostitute would often function as much like a hotel as a brothel, so they may have just been looking for a discreet place to spend the night, okay? Okay? Or maybe not, right? But 
regardless, it's not unlike God. We've read enough so far. It's not unlike God to use seedy characters to fulfill his purpose, right? If you don't believe me, just look around, right? We we know that. God, God tends to use all kinds of people. And the text doesn't tell us why they're there or what they do there because it's not the point. This story is not about the spies. It's about this harlot and who this harlot trusts. Rahab. And really, you you can't get much more desperate than Rahab. I mean, Rahab, right right out of the gate, she has three big strikes against her. First of all, she's a woman. In Canaanite culture, she's, you know, next to nothing, right? Just slightly ahead of a slave. So that's strike one. Strike two, she's a prostitute, okay? It doesn't matter what cults you live in now or then, society has never tended to give a whole lot of respect to those who sell their own bodies. And unless you're watching Pretty Woman, the harlot is rarely the hero of anything. And these are the kind of people, right? I mean, right away that we, I, tend to write off don't we? I can remember uh, a few years back, we were at my 10th high school reunion. Another kind of painful experience, honestly. Um, but uh, I, I remember running into, you know, one of my old classmates and, and chatting with him and it coming out that he was also a pastor. I would have guessed more likely prison. <laughs> and, and I remember in that moment thinking, Really? And in the back of my mind thinking, wow, I never even thought for a moment that Jesus could get this guy's attention. That's kind of shameful, isn't it, of me? But, but how often do we do that? I mean, who are the people in your life that you know of right now that you've just kind of written off, or maybe not individuals, but groups of people that we quickly say, you know what, nah, it's just not going to happen. We're so fast to do that. And the people we tend to write off tend to be the biggest losers, right? The people who have the messiest lives, the most brokenness around them. And the ironic thing is, the only people that God ever seems to write off, like the Pharisees, for example, tend to be the biggest winners. God loves losers. So Rahab is desperate, but that's okay because God looks for desperate people. But that's only two strikes against her. The biggest strike against Rahab, and bigger even than her career choice, if you can believe that, Rahab is a Canaanite. And God has just recently commanded Israel to destroy all of the Canaanites. I'm going to stop there for a minute, don't we? I mean, I knew this was coming, right? If we're going to go through the entire Bible, I've been dreading it all year that at some point we're going to have to talk about this. This, for me, uh, the destruction of these people by the hand of the Israelites commanded by God, every time I read my Old Testament, I struggle with this. Every time. It's, it's hard to, to wrestle with. Why does God command, not just allow, but command the massacre of so many? It's hard, isn't it? Especially for modern Western readers. It's not nearly as hard of people in other cultures to to understand what's going on here. But for us, I mean, it's enough to rattle, if not completely shatter our faith, isn't it? Friends, I'm not not lying to you. I struggle with this as well. I'm not going to solve that problem, okay? Just for the record. 
but I do think we need a few categories to at least help us process this. Many of us are reading right along. We're reading more of these things. How do we process what's going on here? We need to understand who these people were, um, who God is, and even who we are looking back from our sort of cultural vantage point, looking back on them. I mean, the Canaanites, uh, for example, they were, were some of the most bloodthirsty people who ever lived. Uh, they worshipped a, a whole pantheon of, of gods who gloried in bloodshed, who delighted, who reveled in bloodshed. They practiced things like incest and temple prostitution and every despicable thing that we can possibly think of. I mean, they, they would even burn their newborn babies alive in, in worship to their gods. Gladly, regularly. In other words, one author says, the land of Canaan was no paradise before the Israelites got there. In fact, by the way, if, if you're struggling with this issue or some of the other uh, issues within the Old Testament, I, I highly recommend uh, this book to you. It's, it's, such a, it's an incredible resource, sort of responding to the new atheists and their accusation that God is a moral monster. According to Genesis 15, uh, if we were to look back there, God gave the Canaanites 600 years, it says, to repent to turn away from these wicked deeds and turn to the true and living God. 600 years. But God is only so patient. Unless we think that God is just sort of playing favorites, right? Israel can get away with this sort of thing. We can't forget that if we were to look ahead in the story, God is going to do the exact same thing to his own people for their wickedness for the ways that they rebel. He's going to use the Babylonians and the Assyrians from the north just a few hundred years later to be his hand of judgment in their lives. And so what's happening here, God is judging sin. It's not genocide. It isn't ethnic cleansing. That can't be the case because when Rahab does turn and repent, turn to the living God, she's welcomed gladly into the people of Israel. In fact, as we've read, we've read all kinds of commands of the way Israel was, was to treat the foreigners in their midst. That they were to give, be given full rights as a people within, within their, their land. I mean, God loves outsiders. But God told the Israelites... Back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, just, just as a reminder, he, he said to them, again, just to prove that he wasn't trying to, to play favorites. God wanted to make that clear to the Israelites. He said in Deuteronomy 9, he said, Do not say in your heart, again, talking to Israel, that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It's like, that's not it at all. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. It's not because Israel's so great. It's because they're so wicked. And God tells them as well later on in in Deuteronomy 20, he said that they must be destroyed so that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. 
Sin spreads. And God is trying to stop the wickedness from spreading even to his people. And again, just even as I mentioned, um, God's not playing favorites because he would, he would judge his own people in the exact same ways for their rebellion against him when they do end up going in the same direction as the Canaanites. And so like the flood, like, the, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the plagues, God is carrying out judgment on the wicked. And just as he could take my life at any moment, right now, I mean, he would be just to do so, just as he would be just to send any one of us to hell for our rebellion against him, God judges wickedness. And we still don't like it. I know, okay? I don't either. Um, we especially don't like that, that God uses other humans to do his dirty work. That's, that's really a big part of it. I mean, we'd almost feel a little bit more comfortable. We still wouldn't like it, but you know, there'd just been like a big earthquake, right? And just kind of destroyed them all. We'd at least have better categories for understanding it. And yet God uses Israel. And the Israelites are unique. Got to remember that. Uh, there are no parallels with Israel today. Okay? America's not the new Israel. Christians are not. We haven't replaced Israel in that sense. And there is no command anywhere in Scripture for us other than the fact that we are to love and respond to compassion even to those who disagree with us. That, that is clearly what we're called to. And yet, as we look at this ancient period of history, this is an incredible unique period um, in a very different culture from our own, in which God gave them clear commands to be his arm of justice. I think really the question boils down to this. Does your God have permission to judge sinners? I mean, that's that's really the fundamental question behind the question. Does, Does God have permission in your mind, as you think about who he is, to judge sinners? I mean, yes, God is, is loving and he is merciful and we, we celebrate that, we proclaim that, but you cannot, as we said last week, you cannot be loving and not angry at the destruction that takes place in our world. That, that God's wrath, we said, is his settled opposition to the cancer destroying our world and our lives. God must get angry at sin. He must if he's going to be loving and good. I mean, just as a parent, if, if I see my children moving in a path towards their own self-destruction, I'm, I'm right to intervene, even with anger, to be able to stop them. Or, or if somebody's trying to hurt my children, right? Of course I'm going to be angry at that. It's not because I am less loving. It's because I'm so loving to them and would do anything to care for them. And God is similar. And so God judges evil wherever it's found. And we, we've got to keep in mind as well the cultural location from which we make these judgments. Again, I know this isn't going to alleviate all of it. It doesn't alleviate all of the tension that I feel in my own heart. But we do have to understand at least where we are as a society looking back on what they've done. The reason that we struggle so much. I mean, when we make these judgments, we say God is a, is a moral monster. I mean, do you know why we find this slaughter so revolting? It's because of the morals taught in this book. 
We, we don't realize that anymore as a, as a culture, but we have been as a people so shaped, we in Western culture have been so shaped by the morals in this book that when we, we read things like this, we, we struggle. Other places where, where Christianity has made little impact, places where they, they still practice ancient tribalism, uh, different places in the East, in the Middle East, there's very little problem with the wholesale destruction of people, especially if they're your enemies. And so we've got to keep in mind that the reason we struggle with this book is because of this book. The reason we struggle with this book is because of this book. So if you're, going to, if you're going to throw this book out because of the death of so many, you also have to throw out your basis for being revolted at the death of so many. Because only this book teaches such a high value of human life. We don't get that from naturalism, from evolutionary theory, from secularism, from atheism. We don't get that from other religions. We get that from this book, this high value of human life. And as a result of that high value of human life, God must judge the Canaanites for their sins. We don't have to like it. But God will judge who he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Which makes... Rahab, incredibly desperate. I mean, she deserves the death that is coming to her. But God looks for desperate people. And, and whether, whether we believe it or not, want to recognize it or not, like Rahab, like the Canaanites, we also deserve the death that is coming for us, for our choices, for our sin. I mean, yeah, we might say, you know, we're not, we're not as bad as them. We don't, we don't have that much, but come on, let's, let's be honest. Like Rahab, like the Canaanites, we also worship other gods. Frankly, those gods can be just as bloodthirsty. Gods of money and power and success and prestige and, and sex and leisure, all those things that so quickly grab onto us. And this, this book refers to our sin as spiritual prostitution, we all have a lot more in common with Rahab than we'd care to admit. And so before we move on, ask yourself, how desperate am I? Oh, I'm not that bad, right? We have such a high view of ourselves, don't we? And we naively believe that God is going to be patient forever. Judgment is coming. And God will judge those according to their sins. The only escape is through Jesus. How desperate are you? It doesn't take losers, typically, all that long to figure out how desperate they are. Winners, on the other hand, I mean, if, you, if you're a winner, if you already think your life is good enough, you've got it figured out, um, then really, if, if that's you, then you, you just have two options at this point. One, you can keep trying to save yourself. I mean, essentially, that's, that's what you're doing, whether, whether it's by keeping all the rules, being a decent enough person, or even just by trying to, to grab as much happiness right now while the getting is still good. You can keep trying to save yourself that way. Um, or, instead of trying to save yourself, you can take one more deep look within and look at the darkness that lives within us. I mean, do we realize how much we hate God? So if you're, if you're not a Christian, glad that you're here. 
We want to be a place where we can journey together and, and try to explore these things together. We can ask questions and uh, try to figure out what it means to live this life of faith together. But if you're not a believer, it's time to repent, to, ter- to turn from our sins. And, and if you are a believer, it's time to keep repenting daily, to throw ourselves on the mercy of this God. God looks for desperate people. Rahab fits that profile. Do you? Second, God looks for desperate faith. So the the spies are are at her house. Word gets out. uh, And in bursts through the door Jericho's homeland security. But Rahab has, has already hid the spies. Now, first of all, I just, I mean, how incompetent are these spies, right? I mean, they've been in Jericho for like 10 minutes. It's, they're, they're already under hot pursuit. I mean, the Israelites here are just as desperate as anybody, aren't they? I mean, absolutely. But what's so shocking to me about this is what Rahab does. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Rahab is terrified of the Israelite army. Scared spitless. And here is her moment to do her part, right? She's scared to death of these guys. And yet, she protects her enemies, and she lies to her own countrymen. Now her life is really on the line. Because if the Canaanites find out she lied, she's dead. And if the Israelites win the fast-approaching battle, she's dead. So what does she do? She throws herself on the mercy of Israel's God. Destruction is coming. But it's not inevitable. She doesn't, neither do the Canaanites. They don't have to be destroyed in this moment. And Rahab chooses life. And so when the, the coast is clear then, okay, so she, she lies to the, the, the soldiers, sends them off another way, uh, but the spies are still there, hidden in her home. And when the coast is clear, she, she says to them, she says, I know that the Lord, remember Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, it's God's proper name for the Israelite God, for our God. I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came, before, before you when you came out of Egypt. That was, remember, 40 years ago now that that happened. She knows, and she's afraid. And what you did to those two kings of the Amorites, whom you devoted to destruction, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly or mercifully with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Like Rahab, like, or like us, Rahab uh, never witnessed any of those miracles. She's just heard the rumors of this incredible God. I mean, we at least have this book, right? She's heard a bunch of rumors. And both the soldiers looking for the spies and Rahab who hid them had heard the same rumors. 
Both were terrified. The spies try to save themselves. Rahab begs someone else to save her. She pleads for mercy because she knows that without rescue, she will perish. And so in that split second, I just love to have known what's going on in her mind, but there in that split second as she's being questioned about these spies, she changes her allegiance. The the Baals and the whole pantheon of bloodthirsty gods couldn't save her, and she knew it. Uh, Jericho's army and the, the entire army of Canaan couldn't save her, and she knew it. And so she does what desperate people do best. She begs for mercy. And man, is her faith messy. I mean, good grief, right? I mean, this essentially is kind of her conversion story, and it begins with a lie. I mean, what formula do you you fit that into? You know, we have our models of what conversion ought to look like. I don't think any of them begin with a lie. And yeah, we we could debate, you know, the lie and the situation and all of that, but we're not going to go down that route. I mean, the reality is Rahab has no idea what life with her new God is going to look like. She has no clue. None. I mean, her theology right now consists of this. I am going to die unless this God shows me mercy. That's that's her theology. And for right now, it's it's enough. And even just, I mean, as far as the messiness, even just thinking about how, how selfishly motivated her faith is. She's just trying to save her skin, Right? She's terrified. She knows she's going to die if she doesn't. And she wants to live. And so she thinks she has better odds with Yahweh than she does with Baal. I love how messy this story is. Because it gives me hope for me. So is it the quality of Rahab's faith or the quantity of her faith that saves her? Neither. It's the object of her faith that matters. Rahab has a lot to learn, but she believes God and is saved. Which makes me ask, what do I think will rescue me? I mean, really, really at the end of the day, is it, is it my good works or my success or, or my, my reputation that I build? I mean, I'm a pastor, right? What, what are the things that we are looking to that we are convinced will rescue us? We all try to bargain with God, don't we? to earn something. To, to, I mean, I'm not just even talking about for salvation. I mean, sometimes it begins there. We think we can bring something to the table to, to make God accept us. But frankly, even for those of us who are believers, we think we can earn provision or blessing that if I just do blank, then God must do blank. Don't we? So ask yourself, what, what are you really counting on to rescue you, to give you what you truly need? I mean, some of us, when we come to God, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth, we come as if we're sort of cleaning up to take a bath. Like we've got to make ourselves a little bit more presentable for him. We have to do whatever we can to make ourselves acceptable when free acceptance is already offered to us. It's not merely big faith or awesome faith or perfect faith that God wants. Desperate faith is what he's looking for, even when it's messy. It's clear with with Rahab, God meets us where we are. And so if you don't feel good enough, smart enough, 
You don't feel like you have faith enough. Frankly, you feel a little bit like a loser from time to time. Well, good news. This God is for you. The moment you think you can make it on your own is the moment you end up like the Canaanites. Tim Keller writes, he says, imagine you're falling off a cliff. And sticking out of the cliff is a branch that is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab that branch. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You just have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. And Jesus is the branch. It's not the quality or quantity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of our faith that matters. So what do we think will rescue us? I mean, really. I mean, if God can rescue Rahab, messy as all get out, I think he could probably rescue us. I mean, her faith, messy as it is, but I love this. In the, in the New Testament, in two different places, in the books of Hebrews and James, Hebrew, Rahab's messy faith is talked about right there up with Abraham's as this incredible example, this, this woman who turns to Yahweh. And I can't tell you how much hope this gives me. It's my faith. Man, sometimes it's just weak. And the doubts that I struggle with, yes, I mean, I, I'm growing. I'm convinced that, that God is moving me more and more in the direction that, that he wants me to go. And yet, I, I struggle. But if there's hope for Rahab, then maybe there's some hope left over for me. Because God looks for any chance to show mercy. In just a few chapters, the walls of, of Jericho will miraculously crumble to the ground. God wins that battle. Jericho is destroyed, but Rahab the harlot and her entire family are spared. And not just spared, but it, it's made clear throughout the story that, that they're actually truly welcomed into this people. They have no business in the family of God. But God looks for any chance to show mercy. Yes, he's just. And yes, he will judge. But with God, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what it says in the New Testament. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, don't think for a moment that God is, isn't angry about your sin. But he's just waiting on the edge of his seat, waiting, longing to show mercy. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and life. And it doesn't even have to be that much. I mean, look at, look at Rahab. And did you know this as well? Rahab ends up as the great-great-grandmother of King David. I mean, the greatest king in Israel's history. Can you, I mean, just wrap your mind around that. She's not just sort of accepted or tolerated into the community, but she becomes... You know, the, the descendant, one of her descendants becomes the very king of Israel. When God shows mercy, he shows it abundantly. Will you receive it? 
All, all Rahab had to do was gather her family together, dangle this, this scarlet cord out of her window, and wait for Yahweh to rescue. All we have to do is believe. A true belief. True belief means turning or rejecting our sins. It means, it means leaning on, on Christ for forgiveness. It means giving him our, our life, depending on him to rescue us. And, and maybe you don't have much faith. Maybe your life looks messy. Maybe your motivations aren't even all that great. Maybe there's a lot about life with Jesus that you have no idea what it's going to look like. And maybe like Rahab, you haven't personally witnessed this incredible God, but you've heard the rumors. Will you receive it? Will you reach out and grab the branch? And maybe, like, like many of us, maybe, maybe you have received it, and you do identify with Rahab. Do we live, live it out? Do we rejoice in this mercy? Do we show this same kind of mercy to the people around us, to the people in our lives? Do you still realize how desperate you are? God loves losers. This book is about losers. And you want to know who the biggest loser of all is? From a human perspective? Are you kidding? It's Jesus. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, here, here's this, this child born seemingly to Ill, as in an illegitimate way. His, his mom, this unwed teenage girl in poverty, in a barn from Hicksville. And even as he grows up, I mean, his entire people, the people he came to save, reject him. All of Israel wants nothing to do with him. Even his closest friends, the ones he was able to, to scrounge around him, even they abandon him, every one of them. One of them denies him, another betrays him, and this hero, this Messiah, ends up dying the most brutal death ever invented, crucifixion, I mean, saved for the lowest of the lowest of the low. This is what Jesus did. What a loser. And he even hung out with prostitutes. But really, that shouldn't surprise us. It was in his blood. Did you know that about Jesus? Jesus is also one of Rahab's descendants. Check it out. It's in uh, the genealogy of him in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab is one of only four moms listed in that entire long list. But there she is. You see what that means? Jesus, our God, our Savior, has the DNA of a Canaanite whore. God loves losers. And he so identified with us that he came to this earth that he gave everything so that we could receive everything and even allowed himself, not even just to become human, to become human. And if you look at that genealogy, that whole list, it's a whole list, a long line of losers. And he came and he died and he rose again to give us life. Our God loves losers. So maybe there is hope for me. Let's pray.